Welcome to the Flannery Podcast. This is our 14th episode. The issue today, the violence of racism and our response. Stay tuned. Our government is suffocating in its errors. And we're talking about the violence of racism and our response to it. Unfortunately, when we talk about suffocation, this is not just a metaphor. It is also literally true. Years ago, in Staten Island, you may remember, Eric Garner was choked to death, suffocated. Again, there were tape recordings of it. His mother still suffers the indignity that the officer was never prosecuted. Long afterwards, that officer lost his job, but he was never prosecuted. Hardly seemed equitable. Five years ago, my son said, I can't breathe 11 times. And today we can't breathe because they have let us down. It happened again this past week. Another black man under arrest was choked to death. The aftermath of this latest police murder has been chaos across the nation. Almost nothing has replaced it as the top news story, including the coronavirus. We entered into this chapter of chaos because the law was not followed, and not just in the case of George Floyd. Let's consider the incident, and I'm going to take it apart bit by bit, reading the official documents that we've gotten out of Minneapolis, and perhaps some of you have read it. In short, four policemen in Minneapolis with people watching choked a black man to death. Not with their hands, but kneeling on his neck, making him immobile, ignoring his final plea, I can't breathe. How much publicized could it be when he repeatedly said, I cannot breathe? It started with a 911 call. According to documents released days after the incident, a man bought some food at Cup Foods in Minneapolis at about 8.08 p.m., and the storekeep insisted that George Floyd was the customer, and he used a counterfeit $20 bill. George, a black man, was parked just around the corner from the store. Officers Thomas Lane and J.A. Kung arrived at the scene of the crime, if you will, with body cameras that were turned on. I don't believe we've seen what they recorded, not yet. They haven't been made public. We have seen, however, all over social media and elsewhere, third-party recordings made by the public, but not these police recordings. We should have these recordings made public so we know the truth. Officer Lane spoke with Mr. George Floyd, sitting in his car. Then he pulled out his gun. He pointed it at George and demanded George show his hands. Remember, the charge was that George had presented a bogus $20 bill. That's it. It wasn't a holdup at gunpoint. It wasn't uh, an assault or physical of any sort. It was a property crime, if you could call it that. So why was such a show of force? Officer Kuhn was on the passenger side of the car with George's passenger. So it's still Lane and Kung at, the, at that time. Lane demanded George get out of his car seized George and pulled him out of the car. We have no evidence that George at that time knew the 20 was bogus, if it was. We have no admission to this offense by George, no statement that amounted to, yeah, I knew it was a counterfeit, or the opposite, I had no idea it was counterfeit. How do you put 
the intent in a man to know that a bill is counterfeit aside from his admission. George resisted the handcuffs at first. Apparently this was Lane's view of what happened in his report. But then another report was that George relaxed and accepted the cuffs. You have to wonder why Lane didn't just issue a summons rather than arrest George for the bogus 20-buck bill. George walked with Lane to the curb and sat him there on the curb at Lane's direction. At about 8.14 p.m., officers Kung and Lane stood up George and walked him toward the squad car. They say George fell to the ground, and he told the officers he was claustrophobic. We only have their word that this exchange occurred. We do not have their tape recordings. This is why having their recordings would be helpful, to know what the truth was. At about this time, Officer Derek Chauvin arrived on the scene with another officer, Tu Tloa. Mr. Chauvin has been the center of public attention for his past and how he conducted himself in this arrest of George, and he's the only person who's been charged for what happened this day. Chauvin was involved in an earlier fatal shooting, not described more than that. He was the subject of at least 17 complaints during his nearly two decades within the department. But like I said, further details have not been disclosed. This is the kind of information that might rebut any innocent intention Chauvin may yet claim, although it's hard to imagine what that innocent intent could be when we go over the facts. Chauvin's wife has announced she's divorcing him. It's a nice question what she can say, he told her. Official law enforcement documents insist that George wouldn't get up and he was intentionally falling down. Again, it would be good to have the police recordings. These documents say they tried to get George in the squad car on the driver's side. That's interesting because he ends up on the passenger side of the car. Official law enforcement documents cite George's height and weight, plainly to suggest how difficult it would be to deal with him and how implicitly dangerous he might be given his height and weight. Official law enforcement documents claim that George said he couldn't breathe while he was standing. So how did they get him to stand after they claimed he fell and resisted getting up? But official law enforcement documents don't explain how they got him to stand when they said they couldn't get him to stand as well. Official law enforcement documents say that Chauvin and Lane and Chuang tried to get George into the squad car on the passenger side. Not a lot of time passed from when George left curbside to his position on the passenger side of the car. It was at 8.19.38 seconds that Chauvin pulled George out of the passenger side of the car. So how far in was he? And remember, George had cough, cuffs behind his back. So George fell to the ground on his face. This is five minutes after they had George get up from the curb. Official law enforcement documents don't explain why anyone would do such a thing, throwing a person face down on the ground. It's brutal. It is what Trump suggested, however, the police should do when arresting someone. Don't be too nice. If you haven't guessed, these facts I'm recounting are drawn from the so-called charges so lazily filed days later against Chauvin, alleging that he committed the murder of George Floyd. But the affidavit in support of the charges that I've been quoting has these facts cutting across the prosecution, against the prosecuting prosecution, sitting there, I wonder, waiting to be resurrected, perhaps by defense counsel down the road, when we are no longer watching the case so carefully as we are right now. Perhaps there's the hope that they can use the other officers to help get Chauvin out of this jam if none of them are arrested. Only Chauvin has been arrested. 
Chauvin put his knee in the area of George's head and neck. Kwong held George's back. Lane held his legs. There was nothing George can do. He was immobile and in pain, face down into the earth with these people holding him. George said, I can't breathe. He repeated, I can't breathe. He said it again. He called for his mama. He said, please. None of the three officers moved to release the pressure. George's entreaties for help went unheeded. One picture of Chauvin that circulated looks posed, like Chauvin was leaning back, getting a trophy photo to put him on the police locker room for bragging rights for his abuse of George. Lane asked, should we roll him on his side? Chauvin said, staying put where we got him. Lane said, I'm worried about delirium or whatever. Neither Lane nor Chung did anything to end the torture they had inflicted on George. Chauvin said, that's why we have him on his stomach. At 8.24 p.m., George moved no more. He said nothing. He was immobile. That's about five minutes after these officers threw George face down on the ground in this torturous, immobile contortion that plainly stole his ability to breathe, as he told them was the case, until he finally lost the ability to have even the breath to talk to say that he couldn't breathe. Kwong checks George's pulse. He found there was no pulse. Still, no officer moved George from his position. These three officers continued to hold George down. Chauvin held his knee in place until 8.27, 34 seconds p.m. George was dead at the scene. But get this, they reported his death only when he arrived at the hospital. The autopsy suggested other causes of death that will necessarily prompt another medical examiner by Floyd's family, no doubt, to make their own examination if the authorities have not disposed of George's body. Chauvin had his knee on George's neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. Chauvin kept his knee in place for 2 minutes and 53 seconds after Chauvin was unresponsive, had no pulse. Was that to assure he was dead? What other conclusion can we logically reach? So then why is this murder in the third degree instead of first degree murder? And why aren't the other officers charged with anything? Police are trained that this restraint is inherently dangerous. Do you have to be trained to see and know what you're doing to a person who's telling you he can't breathe? Could there be an officer in America who was unfamiliar with what happened to Eric Garner in 2014 when he was choked to death? Thus did George die. Over a $20 counterfeit bill that George may not have known was counterfeit. George never got his day in court. This was murder plain and simple. A horrible act seen by the nation. And only because of the people, the bystanders, who recorded the event on smartphones. Think about that for a few moments. Stay tuned. We don't have any pictures from the cameras the police had. I've said that. Consider the attitude of that police department, if you can, from the words of that department's union head. Lieutenant Bob Kroll, who's the head of the Minneapolis Police Union, slammed former President Barack Obama's, quote, handcuffing and oppression of police while praising Donald Trump at a re-election rally the president held in the city. Donning a red Cops for Trump shirt, 
as he took the stage, the lieutenant attacked the Obama administration over his alleged despicable treatment of police, adding, the first thing President Trump did when he took office was turn that around. He decided to start to let cops do their job, put the handcuffs on the criminals instead of us. Is that the right attitude to avoid a situation like what happened to George? Trump encouraged the police not to be so nice when arresting the suspect. Please don't be too nice. Like when you guys put somebody in the car and you're protecting their head, I said you can take the hand away, okay? Minneapolis was only the latest episode in racial discrimination in this nation. A discrimination that's been going on for more years than anyone wants to admit. That is, the police mishandling persons of color brutally and not just in Minneapolis. Trump has effectively turned the clock back to an er earlier time in the 60s when racism provoked violence. One can't define protest as limited to some sort of comfortable middle-class march with signs and muted voices, a kind of gentrified protest. But that's what they describe as the standard they expect. That, and that they are the politicians and the, and the people embarrassed by the truth and who shade and cover it in various ways. Seemingly all the time in every circumstance, however, enlightened they seem to have been when they were candidates or while they've been in office until something like this happens. When a segment of society is oppressed by lawless and violent acts and young men and women fear for their lives because their skin color is deemed unacceptable by the powers that be and in and of itself considered a cause to abuse the person of color, what kind of demonstration or reaction do we expect? James Baldwin, a writer and author, summed up the discrimination he suffered as a black man in the 40s in America, prompting him to leave the nation to live elsewhere. When I left this country, in 1948. I had this country for one reason only, one reason. I didn't care where I went. I might have gone to Hong Kong, I might have gone to Timbuktu, I ended up in Paris, on the streets of Paris. With $40 in my pocket on the theory that nothing worse could happen to me there than it already happened to me here. You talk about making it as a writer by yourself, you had to be able then to turn up all the antenna with which you live because once you turn your back on this society, you may die. You may die. And it's very hard to be a typewriter and concentrate on that if you're afraid of the world around you. The years I lived in Paris did one thing for me. They released me from that particular social terror, which was not the paranoia of my own mind, but a real social danger visible in the face of every cop, every boss, everybody. I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. I don't know if white Christians hate Negroes or not, but I know that we have a Christian church which is white and a Christian church which is, which is black. I know as Malcolm X once put it, it's the most segregated hour in American life is high noon on Sunday. That says a great deal for me about a Christian nation. It means that I can't afford to trust most white Christians and certainly can't trust the Christian church. I don't know whether the labor unions and their bosses really hate me. That doesn't matter, but I know I'm not in their unions. I don't know if the real estate lobby is anything against black people, but I know the real estate lobbies keep me in the ghetto. I don't know if the Board of Education hates black people, but I know the textbooks that give my children to read and the schools that we have to go to. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Jesse Jackson who was an aide to Martin Luther King, 
and a leader himself in the black community, talks about the experience of a black man of himself in America and how he was surprised that he made it to 50 years of age. In 1988, I served as Jesse's co-chair for Virginia in that year's presidential election. When he asked, invited me to take over the position, I said, so you wish to have me as a narrow band in the Rainbow Coalition? And he laughed. I got to watch Jesse up close and with white men in the south side of Virginia who didn't hide their intolerance of Jesse. Still, Jesse remained stoic with his eye on the prize, equality, advancement of black persons in America. Uh, I too know suffering. My great-grandfather was the sheriff of Greenville County who raped my great-grandmother. And of that relationship, my grandmother, uh, who was stolen from the plantation by my grandfather. And then my father came out of that relationship. Uh, I know suffering. I was born to a teenage mother. I was born to a teenage mother. July 17, 1960, I went to jail in Greenville, South Carolina, trying to use a library. July 17, 1984, I was speaking for the Democratic Convention in San Francisco without the aid of, of government sponsorship. But whenever I see these barriers knocked down, in part because of our work, it's always gratifying. Last time at the height of the uh, Persian Gulf War, and uh, Colin Powell had immense visibility in the country, and some would say, we want Colin Powell, uh, we want uh, Bill Gray, who was chair of the budget committee at that time, uh, number three from Speaker of the House in the Congress. Uh, we want Doug Wilder. Well, I knew eight years ago before I ran, even dropping names of blacks as a frame of reference would not have been done. So there is a renewed consciousness. I never thought I would make 50. So many people with whom I worked, uh, frontline people, I have uh, preached at funerals, I attended them. And what it was uh, Dr. King and Malcolm, who only made it to 38, uh, Medgar Evers, who didn't make it that far, uh, a generation of fighters, uh, Fred Hampton and, and others of them, uh, I feel blessed to have had the longevity and the struggle. Something within me tells me that the change we seek uh, needs to take place. Something without tells me that, that, it, that it can take place. And, and it, I'm inspired not only by my background of suffering and struggle, but by, but by hope. By the way, we won Virginia for Jesse in 1988, and I went as a delegate to the convention in Atlanta. By then, the effort was to improve the platform and the policies going forward. Dukakis carried the banner into the general election. For many of those oppressed by lawlessness, the forms of protest that have followed George's killing reflect the lawlessness that prompted the response. Mostly, the upshot of protest has been property crime, but not exclusively. And our government should make whole these property owners who bore the brunt of the intolerable policies of the government that caused this fear and this violence. Let's talk about the American philosophy and our nation's hypocrisy. Stay tuned. We made a bargain with the people all the people, when we declared our independence from a British king, insisting that all were equal, and the claim that we were all equal, it was a lie when first written, known to be false, if you were a slave, a person of color, a woman, a person without property. 
We have worked since, however. We've grown more equal and with great past success, our due diligence to perfect that original unfulfilled promise. In the 60s, Robert Kennedy addressed our hypocrisy on the nostrum that we're all equal, said with fervent devotion, repeatedly, although we provide nothing of the sort, not in the 60s and certainly not today. Great wealth that I talk Please about listen to Bob. And this great poverty. There are speeches made about the fact that we're going to treat everybody equally, and yet we don't treat everybody equally. There's talks given, uh, pronouncements made, and laws written that uh, everybody's going to have an opportunity to have a job and have decent housing, and yet 43% of the people that live in the city of New York and live in this city uh, live in dilapidated and run-down housing and are bitten by rats, 17,000 people bitten by rats, and the uh, poverty in rural areas is, is worse. So if, if we weren't uh, sanctimonious about it, we weren't hypocritical about it, and we didn't perhaps tell untruths about ourselves, then I think that, uh, and, and faced up to reality, then I think our country would be much better off, and our people would have much more confidence in those of us who are public officials and in our government as a whole. There's a long-standing economic violence that matters here. We have refused as a nation to share our productivity with the workers who made this prosperity possible so that the poverty trickles down incessantly and inexorably compromising these people, particularly persons of color. Those who suffer most remain the poor and the persons of color. They have also suffered more from the pandemic, the other story that we're talking about less this week, though it is as present as ever was, having as much to do with their socioeconomic condition. Our nation has lost its way when it comes to our tolerance toward difference. That is why the protests are not just in Minnesota. The nation, the whole nation, recoils from these offenses against humanity because we the people know we're better than this. We believe we are best when we are united as one from many. Since the hated tyrant Trump announced for office the gains in respect and dignity for differences between races and religion and nationality have been compromised, perhaps without repair. The fiber of unity and tolerance has been torn asunder, and this national outcry for justice is the result. Consider our chief executive. Stay tuned. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. We all remember how, in, this, in his presidential announcement, Trump attacked those who came to the states from Mexico. In Charlottesville, a racist and anti-Semitic mob with torches spoke about white supremacy. Their chants were hateful and shouted at the students and town folks. What did Trump see? Oh, he just saw people with different views. Of course, he said that the left was violent. Listen to this. I'm not putting anybody on a moral plane. What I'm saying is this. You had a group on one side and you had a group on the other and they came at each other with clubs and it was vicious and it was horrible and it was a horrible thing to watch. But there is another side. There was a group on this side, you can call them the left, you've just called them the left, that came violently attacking the other group. So you can say what you want, but that's the way... But it was a racist at Charlottesville 
who did more than talk, who drove a car into a woman and killed her. Listen to the crowd. That was the crowd's reaction. Healing, coming together, will require a lot more than thoughts and prayers, given this kind of history, given this kind of bias, because our leaders allowed this crisis in the first place, and now they contemplate doubling down with violence and force against citizens and journalists for the depraved conditions that they made possible. Let's talk a little bit more about the demonstrations. Stay tuned. I'm making this podcast on Sunday. On Saturday night, last night, a peaceful protest was stopped by National Guard with tear gas shot at the crowd that had provoked no such response. They also shot rubber bullets. I once saw a man struck down with a rubber bullet in Barcelona. He didn't move. On Saturday night, MSNBC's Ali Velsi was covering the demonstration in Minneapolis on the ground when the gas and bullets commenced. It was a horrific sight to see on video and very different than what our so-called leaders said it was like when the guard and police were, I guess you might say, our friends, welcoming into the community to help and to be friends. Listen to Velsi's harrowing experience out of his own mouth as gas came toward him, as he breathed it, and he himself was struck with a bullet. Nobody was doing anything. They pulled in. Joshua, there was nothing that happened whatsoever. The police pulled into this intersection, unprovoked, right into the middle of the crowd, split the crowd, started firing in both directions. They now have fired at us. Did anybody hear it? The gentleman next to us got hit. And that is what has happened. This is the first interaction we have seen tonight with the police. Those are uh, police with uh, National Guard. They continue to move. Gas is coming in now. Uh, and that's what the situation is. They have unclear what their intentions are, whether they're staying in that intersection or they're moving in. They're going to shoot at this guy. Where are they going to shoot? All right, they're going to shoot. Where are they going to shoot? They're going to shoot. Are you all right? Are you okay? Yeah, I got you. I got you. Yeah, you can come to me. 
Okay, what's what, what's happening? Talk us through what's going on. Joshua, you there? I'm here. Can you hear me? All right, Joshua, I've got I got you back here. Uh, we got hit, unfortunately, with uh, with tear gas without our masks on because it was that fast we have by the way had a good sense of when the uh the uh tear gas is going to come uh the police have generally been pretty orderly about it but what happened here there was no warning whatsoever they literally pulled into the station jumped out of their car and uh, and they just came in and started shooting uh we were very close we weren't by the way anywhere near the front of the crowd we were maintaining security protocol we were probably in the last third of the crowd and they intercepted the crowd. They just broke the crowd, which put us very, very close to the police, and they fired on us. Uh, there were flashbangs that came out. There were canisters that came out. And you saw they actively aimed their guns at people. And again, Joshua, I will put my career on this. There was nothing at any stage in this protest that was not... I, I will tell you this. I've been here now for three days. I have not seen this level of aggression at all. we got sirens now. Uh... They are moving now. They're moving closer, Pierce. Uh, they have split the they have split the crowd. The, uh, the the half of the march was in front and has moved forward. You are now hearing sirens. There are people moving in. I'm not sure what that is. That's an ambulance that's going by. Uh, but that is the situation now. I will tell you. I'm going to ask uh, Miguel to just take a quick spin around. Take a quick look at this, Miguel. We got we got protesters now moving closer in. The police continue to fire. <coughs> Ali, it sounds like they're chanting, do it, do it, like they're daring the state troopers to fire on them again. Is that, am I hearing that right? All right, guys, I got hit. Yeah, I got hit. Hold on. Let's come back out for just a minute. Ali Velshi is standing by on the scene with us in Minneapolis. On Sunday morning after this, I heard the governor and others downplay the violence of the armed forces on the streets of Minneapolis. What they said was not even close to the truth. They must have presumed that no one saw what I saw, although many had to see it. So they're lying to the, I don't know, the people who don't care, the careless, the indifferent, who are fine with racism. I don't know. They, they want to believe that the right thing is going on, so they don't let the facts compromise their bias. Trump and uh, Barr our so-called attorney general, who's nothing more than a mouthpiece for Trump, seek license to use even more violence by suggesting dark forces are at large in these demonstrations. And that's not just our citizens protesting. There are other forces at work here. This boogeyman tactic, you know, uh, where some alien vaguely identified troublemaker is the cause of the worst part of the demonstration, is what despots and dictators have done throughout history. It worked for Hitler, Putin, Erdogan to cloak their corrupt methods of oppression, including more violence against those who displease their government. It served to cut short protest, and it serves to try to cut those off who demand justice for a change. Politicians confound the resolution of a problem when they resort to force instead of reform. Reform is hard work. But there's not been a word of a single policy that might make a difference. When it comes to discrimination and the denial of individual rights and liberties, Trump has taken the land of milk and honey and transformed it into a vast wasteland. Trump, the son of a KKK supporter, has fulfilled his father's destiny, but we've got to guard against it becoming our American destiny. We should look to how violence was handled in the past, how racism was handled in the past, and how we've forgotten the lessons learned. Stay tuned.
New York City's mayor, Lindsay, in the 60s, literally walked up to Harlem, scared the hell out of his aides, Sid Davidoff, for doing so. But he avoided violence in that fashion, talking to the people, having a dialogue with them. Listen to Sid Davidoff describe it. We were up there as soon as we got the news about uh, Martin Luther King. Both of us met up there. And as you can imagine, it was uh, a, a very tense situation on the streets. Um, we spoke to the mayor. I was at Gracie Mansion. And he said, I want to come up. And both of us said, you can't come up. There is, there's no way we can guarantee safety here. Uh, you know, the, the, the windows, you know, there were potential of windows being broken. It was very hot. It still hadn't gotten to the People were more mourning and uh, it was the anger hadn't risen yet but it was the initial shock and you could see where it was going we had enough experience i said this could this it, it could be just too dangerous man wouldn't have anything to do with it he says i'm coming up there i'm going to be there at such and such a time where do you want me to be it's the man you, you know we're going to fight with him he was surrounded by the five percenters and guiding uh bumpy johnson who uh, was famous in American Gangster, who took a liking to the mayor and sent his daughter with a couple of guys. And if you look at the pictures, you'll see Chuck Willis, I just got the name. You'll see one of my guys, Chuck Willis, you'll see Teddy Gross, and then you'll see seven people you, no one could ever describe. Uh, some wearing the shiki, that was the five percenters, uh, and a couple of guys in suits that was the Bumpy Johnson. Uh, and um, that's who surrounded the man. They met us on the street, and he got out of the car, and he began to walk. And within minutes, you know, thousands of people knew he was there, because everybody was on the street that night. It was difficult to describe, other than tumultuous. Uh, and, um, and he began walking and, and shaking hands and hugging people and saying, I'm sorry. And meanwhile, around him were some really bad guys of Harlem. Uh, and uh, at that point, Percy Sutton showed up uh, and became a shoving match because he wanted to be next to the mayor and a couple of other local politicians. And this wasn't about local politics. This was about John Lindsay, who had been in that neighborhood many times, obviously very recognizable, who was coming back to say, uh, I feel your pain. And he did feel the pain. Mayor Lindsay felt very strongly that we were causing the problem ourselves by not paying attention to what was going on in the cities to spend our money on rockets instead of spending it on people. Listen to this. Someday, I hope, the monetary commitment we have made to the exploration of space and to the urgency with which it has been made available will be extended to the cities. When and if that realignment of priorities takes place, it could mean that the biggest growth industry in all of America, the biggest market for new products, will be the cities. Even now, the metropolitan areas of this country are waiting anxiously for the ingenuity and skills of this country's amazing technology to be applied to their mounting crises. In some instances, we've been waiting for decades but during those decades, the very progress we seek as cities has been brought in abundance to us as individual citizens. Conditions in most of our central cities are shameful. That shame diminishes the pride of the entire country. 
The restoration of that pride must be predicated upon a more energetic and powerful direction of this nation's inventive and productive genius to the massive technological deficiencies of our major cities. When Robert Kennedy spoke in Indianapolis and told the crowd that had not heard of the death of the Reverend Martin Luther King, of his assassination, that King had died that day, he calmed their fears and anger, and no riot was had in that city and no riot was held in New York. I have some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. For those of you who are black and are tempted to build with, be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. A favorite poem, my, my favorite poet was Aeschylus. He once wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart in our own despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another. Feeling of justice with those who still suffer 
within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. We can do well in this country. We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past, but we will, and we will have difficult times in the future. It is not the end of violence. It is not the end of lawlessness. And it's not the end of disorder. But the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together, want to improve the quality of our life, and want justice for all human beings that abide in our land. Where is that person-to-person dialogue that John Lindsay and Robert Kennedy thought was right and apt, that a leader should be thinking to do, our president should be doing? Why isn't the governor, why aren't the mayors in the street talking to these people? Why isn't there an open meeting in a school somewhere six feet apart talking about what the issues are, what the, what the community thinks they haven't gotten that they need that would make them feel equal? Well, we couldn't expect that from Trump for sure, and we haven't seen it really except at news conferences from the people in Minneapolis and elsewhere. Robert Kennedy's last words, spoken aloud, were to promise change, to work together after the division and violence of the time to restore the nation. How could we do less now? Listen to Bobby. certain obligations and responsibilities to our fellow citizens, which we talked about during the course of this campaign, but I want to make it clear that if I'm elected president of the United States with your help, I intend to do that. All of these primaries have indicated, and all of the party caucuses have indicated, whether they occurred in Colorado or Idaho or Iowa, wherever they occurred, it was the people in the Democratic Party and the people in the United States wanted change. What I think is quite clear is is that we can work together in the last analysis and that what has been going on within the United States over the period of the last three years, the divisions, the violence, the disenchantment with our society, the divisions whether it's between blacks and whites, between the poor and the more affluent, or between age groups or on the war in Vietnam, that we can start to work together. We are a great country, a selfish country, and a compassionate country. And I intend to make that my basis for running in over the period of Thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. So what's to be done? What can we possibly do? We've been here before. Stay tuned. It's not like we have to appoint a commission to figure this out. We did that years ago, 
and we followed for some time to good benefit what was recommended with some success. President Johnson summoned the commission to study the violence and riots in America more than 50 years ago. I'm tonight appointing a special advisory commission on civil disorders. The commission's principal finding, no surprise, was that poverty and institutional racism were driving violence. The public didn't want to hear it, according to polls, but that's what the commission found, the Kerner Commission. In the 60s, there were riots that were nothing less than chaos, a taste of which we've gotten this past week. Fear drove a lot of the violence. Martin Luther King talked about what to do if the only alternative to fear was violence. Reverend King argued that there were alternatives to violence. He thought that violence was a futile method. He insisted that nonviolence was the best alternative. Listen but to this interview from the 60s. That if the only alternative to violence, uh, to fear, uh, is violence and vice versa, then I would say fight. But it isn't the only alternative. And that is the one point that Gandhi was trying to bring out. It seems to me that there are three ways that oppressed people can deal with their oppression. What are they, Dr. King? Well, one is to rise up in uh, open violence, in physical violence. And some persons have used that method, persons who have been oppressed. But I think the danger of that method is its futility. I feel that violence creates many more social problems than it solves. May I interrupt you there, Dr. King? There are today certainly people who are forced to endure a kind of injustice that neither you nor even Gandhi in his time had ever seen. Uh, for example, would you regard the martyrs of Hungary's rebellion a year ago as misguided men and having used violence? I admire freedom fighters wherever they are, but I still believe that nonviolence is the strongest approach. I think that would apply to the Hungarian situation also. I don't think it's limited to a particular locality. I think it uh, should apply in every situation in the world where individuals seek to break loose from the bondage of colonialism or from some totalitarian regime or from the system which we confront in America. You truly believe then that nonviolence is the sole, the universal answer to injustice and oppression? Very definitely. Very definitely. I feel that um, nonviolence, organized, I should say, organized uh, nonviolent resistance is the most powerful weapon weapon that oppressed people can use in breaking loose from the bondage of oppression. Now the other method that one might use is that of resignation or acquiescence. But I think that is just as bad as violence because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Many Americans blame the riots on outside agitators or young black men who represented the largest and most visible group of rioters. The Kerner Commission said these conspiracy theories were just not true. So too today, we should put them to bed. The, the commission found an array of causes, bad policing practices, a flawed justice system, unscrupulous consumer credit practices, poor and inadequate housing, high unemployment, voter suppression, and other culturally embedded forms of racial discrimination all converged to propel violent upheaval on the streets of African-American neighborhoods in American cities, north and south, east and west. 
And as black unrest arose, inadequately trained police officers and the National Guard troops entered affected neighborhoods, often worsening the violence. Doesn't that sound exactly like today? The panel concluded, and this was what was most frequently repeated, white society is deeply implicated in the ghetto. White institutions created it. White institutions maintain it, and white society condones it. Another conclusion was that our nation, quote, was so divided that the United States was poised to fracture into two radically unequal societies, one black, one white. Isn't that a fair def description of what we have under Mr. Trump? That's something like we've come to suffer with Trump and the West Wing. The Kerner Commission confirmed that nervous police and National Guardsmen sometimes fired their weapons recklessly after hearing gunshots or what they thought they heard. The commission found that racial discrimination limited African-Americans' ability to escape from poverty, deplored arming police officers with more deadly weapons. The commission proposed aggressive government spending to provide equal opportunities to African-Americans. So the solution is obvious. The solution has been before us in the past. The solution is here and now. Do we have the courage to implement it? I'm a kid from the South Bronx. This is not off the topic either. And I was sad to read how that borough in Bronx in the New York has suffered the worst in the coronavirus in the city, in the New York area. Reports have focused on the River Park Towers in the Bronx, how a, a ride in the deathly towers on an elevator and <clears throat> a walk in the crowded hallways was perilous indeed for the health and safety of the people there. The leader of the tenant association died in April. Some untold number is infected and perhaps deceased as well. But there's more, and it is the method that explains a lot across America. The socioeconomic gains in the Bronx over the last several decades are no longer because of the virus. Businesses are closed. Unemployment is up 2,000% from a year earlier. This is a snapshot of what's happening in every economically challenged community across the nation inhabited by persons of color. Certainly, that was a base, primitive, elemental factor in Minneapolis, the poverty, the bias. As violent, though economic, as a slap in the face, a punch, or a bullet to the heart. If George had passed a counterfeit $20, was that a Jean Valjean kind of offense? Certainly, what happened to him was amazingly disproportionate to the so-called charge that was never proven. More recently, one of the Kerner Commission members described what the commission recommended and has the advantage of being uh, so many years after the Kerner Commission in something like the current atmosphere. Listen to this. Why did President Johnson want to start the commission? Well, we were having these terrible uh, disorders, riots all over the country. The worst were, of course, in Detroit and Newark. Nobody knew how it was going to end and whether it would be a kind of a continuing thing. Was it a harbinger of things to come? And so uh, he said, I want you to say what happened, why did it happen, and what can be done to keep it from happening again and again. 
what we found in the Kerner report was, as for example here in Detroit or uh, in, other, in other cities, conditions were so horrible and the relations between the police and the people in these uh, central cities were so awful that almost any random spark could uh, uh, ignite this uh, kind of disorder and that's what happened. The Kerner Commission report, you could read this today and right. apply it to cities like Baltimore, Ferguson, even here in Detroit, That's right. any major metropolitan area, frankly, same exact problems we're dealing with in America. That's a sad thing. We made progress on uh, almost every aspect of race and poverty for about 10 years uh, after the Kerner Report. And then it be progress stopped. And in many ways, we began to go backward. So uh, the same thing about the police. We were against militarization of the police. We thought that automatic rifles and tanks and so forth didn't have any business being in an urban situation. And we thought that the police ought to be community police, that they ought to be members of the community, not enforcing the law against the community, but for the community. And we made progress in that regard for a good while. Do you think there's been a cost of ignoring the recommendations of the Kerner Commission? Yes, there, there certainly has. A big cost? We ought to be investing heavily in infrastructure and in education, particularly early uh, ed childhood education. We ought to be seeing that people have jobs. Health care, for example, looked like for a while we'd made some real progress, and now we may be moving backward. But I think what we've got to do is help people to see that these problems are with us. In some ways, they're worse, and, uh, and we've got to... Uh, take action because it's in our own interest to do so. The most famous words, probably the core of the of the report was, our nation is moving toward uh, two societies, one white, one black, separate and unequal. Is that still true today? It's still true. We'd say one white, one black and Hispanic today and other minorities, separate and unequal. And it's grown that way again. In conclusion, I'd like to direct your attention to a song a young man wrote, I Just Want to Live. In a way, it echoes what uh, Jesse said about how old he'd expected to live and was grateful that he made it to 50 years of age. It's beautifully rendered, and I'm going to finish with his song, From a Soul Rightly Afraid, which is at the core of what we must remedy. Thanks for joining us. Please subscribe, and we'll be with you next week. Listen to the song. I'm a young black man Doing all that I can To stay All the when I look around And I see what's being done to my kind Every day I'm being hurt to this prey my people don't want no trouble. We've had enough struggle. I just wanna live. God protect me. I just wanna live. I just wanna live. Oh my word.